All right, everyone, um, let's get started. Um, welcome to the first Philosophy at LSE event of uh, Lent term 2011. Um, as many of you know, uh, these talks have been made possible uh, with the collaboration of the Forum for European Philosophy, the Center for the Philosophy of Natural and Social Sciences here at the LSE, as well as the Department of Philosophy, Logic, and Scientific Method. Um, so our speaker tonight is Alex Vorhofer. Um, as some of you know, uh, Alex has spent several years working on um, the ethics of distribution, um, primarily um, with regards to risk. Uh, tonight's talk is going to be on the moral importance of the difference between the unity of the individual and the separateness of persons. Um, in addition, um, Alex is uh, the author of Conversations on Ethics, um, which came out about a year ago. Thank you so much. All right, so uh, does everyone have a handout? It doesn't contain the examples, but it contains my conclusions. Um, and uh, you'll see uh, basically what we're going to go towards today is, I think there's an example, a simple <coughs> example involving just two cases and two people, which shows that all through May 3 of the principal distributive theories that have kind of ruled the roost for the last discussion for the last hundred years are wrong. And a single example should, I hope, show this. Moreover, every combination of these three theories, these three distributive principles, is wrong. So that's my promise to you tonight <coughs> that I will attempt to show uh, a negative conclusion, but quite a startling one, and one that uh, if you take anything away, you should take away in your notebooks this simple example because it's a giant killer. I almost got myself when I realized that the t-shirt, I got very excited about this. You know, it, there's this children's story um, uh, of a tailor who hits, he's bothered by flies and he hits, uh, smacks seven flies in one blow at some point. And he's so proud that he makes himself a t-shirt which says seven in one blow. And, uh, uh, if my argument stands up tonight, uh, then uh, I'll, you know, I might consider making myself T-shirt three in one blow, more or less. Uh, three with one example. It, it will be a, a kind of philosopher's thing. So what you'll see, uh, the result will be in the final bit of the handout. Uh, when a theory dies, because of one of my examples, uh, they get Damien Hirst's inlaid bejeweled skull. So uh, I'll start with an example that shows that equalitarianism is false, and that one's been around for ages. Uh, then I'll uh, move on to a case which shows that a competing view, which I'll explain in a moment, prioritarianism, is false, and that's been around for about two years, uh, at least. And uh, then today I will unveil a new example which will kill all three uh, and show that uh, all three of them are false. That's the aim. So another part of the aim is that all three theories fail for a very basic reason. And the basic reason is that they don't respect, don't sufficiently respect, the distinction between the unity of the individual on the one hand and the 
Well, in, so, in the area that I'm talking about today, which is distributive ethics, and especially of a particular kind, I'll be talking about the distribution of harms and benefits to people where no one is being harmed as a means to help others. Harms and benefits are, are merely something that will be produced by nature and that you can stop from being produced as a, uh, and who are you? You're a benevolent third party, a stranger to everyone involved. Everyone else is equal. Um, uh, they're the same age. They're all more equally morally virtuous, etc. The only relevant factor about them is merely that they're persons and that they're experiencing or would experience a certain level of well-being in their life. And you're estranged to them, you have no special ties to them. So when I speak of distributive ethics, that's what I will be um, discussing. And it's basically how you, in such a position, as a benevolent, morally motivated stranger, should decide on different possible distributions of harms and benefits when you think that only their, the well-being of the individuals involved matters. Of course, morality is much more inclusive than questions of this kind, but these are quite important. So what do I mean when I say that in distributive ethics, the three leading theories don't respect the distinction between the unity of the individual and the separateness of persons? Well, the thought is this. Individual lives have a certain unity which makes it permissible to balance benefits and burdens that would come to the same person or might, in risky cases, come to the same person. To balance these benefits and burdens <coughs> against each other in a manner that is not permitted to balance them against each other when we are in many person cases where the benefits will come to some and the harms to others rather than that they will or could happen within one person's life. If that's not yet fully clear, then I hope it will become clear uh, in the course of the lecture. Okay, and one way I'll be talking about this is when I'm talking about ben balancing benefits and burdens within a person's life, the word intra-personal trade-offs. Within a person. And that is balanced, seeing benefits and burdens across separate, people li separate people's lives. Then I'll talk about interpersonal trade-offs. And the key idea is that there are some cases where this type of balancing is permissible. A given benefit can be balanced against a given burden for a given individual, for that person's sake. That is, it's permissible to make that trade-off within a person's life, but it's not permissible to make that very same trade-off when the benefits go to one person and the harms, the burdens, go to another person. Where the size of the benefits and burdens is the same in both cases, the only difference is that rather than occurring or potentially occurring within one person's life, we shift some of them, the good goes to some people and the bad 
goes to another person, where these people are all without, before the whole game starts, uh, at an equal level of well-being. Okay, so that's the slogan. This difference between intra and interpersonal trade-offs <coughs> follows from the distinction between the unity of an individual's life, which allows for this balancing within an individual's life, and the disunity or separateness of different people's lives. So let's start with a simple uh, case, a case that's well known, but it will help us uh, introduce it. It's a certainty case. <coughs> <coughs> And we start with Adam. Let Adam have a moderate disability. And you learn that, um, say, his local source of drinking water will soon change its course, go via a, a piece of soil where it will pick up a certain mineral. Now, when it has this mineral in it, and he drinks the water, which is his only source of drinking water, he will first, at time zero, get a burden. Say, um, he will be bedridden for many months in response to the shock of drinking this water with this particular mineral. But then later on, he will get a benefit. Say, his moderate disability will be much improved and I'm not going to describe these burdens and benefits much more to you, except imagine now for yourself that they, ba that they balance in such a manner that the benefit is just sufficiently larger than the burden to Adam, that if you were able to choose between, so the natural course of events is this will happen, but you can prevent it from happening. You can prevent the uh, water taking its course and keep it on its old course, say, so that he will stay at this level of well-being. For his sake, you decide, no, I should let things take their course. Because it will be burdensome to him for some period of time, but then it will be better for him. It's like a medical treatment given by nature, with painful at first and then beneficial. And just imagine that the balance between the two and the period of time that they're suffered is just sufficiently large, the benefit as opposed to the burden, that you will let it go for his sake. You will refrain from intervening for Adam's sake. Okay. Now, what if instead we have a different case? Where it's Adam and Bill. Again, if you don't do anything, both, both of them will have the moderate disability. Oh, sorry, that's the baseline. Uh, both of them have a moderate disability. Again, the water will take its course, but now it will burden Adam and give him no benefit later on. He will simply have a bad response to this new mineral in the water. And uh, his moderate disability will not all be helped. Whereas Bill will have no response in the first period, and then he will have a benefit a significant improvement in his condition. Now, the burdens and the benefits are meant to be exactly the same as they are in our first case. So all we have now is a period in which Adam gets a burden and he never gets a later benefit. 
and a period in which Bill gets no burden and he just gets the later benefit. Given that you thought it was just barely large enough here to balance it out here and let the chips fall where they may or let the water go as it uh, goes rather than intervening, do you now have a reason that you didn't have before to intervene? Do you have a reason to say, I should stop the water taking this course, or it's permissible for me to stop it, because it will burn an atom who will get no benefit in return, and thereby become worse off than Bill throughout? I think you do. The fact that this burden is not compensated for Adam, and uh, the bill just gets a benefit without, because the, the benefit is shifted from Adam to Bill, makes a difference. Think of what Adam could say to you if he were communicating with you about your choice. He could say, why should you let this burden fall on me in order to make someone else better off? When if you don't let this burden fall on me, we will just both be equally well off. Given that you thought that the benefit was just slightly larger than the burden to begin with when it concerned <coughs> me. Or to put it another way, here you can justify, if Adam is in pain because of his new source of drinking water, you can justify to him why you let this happen. Because I'm doing it for your sake. Things will get much better for you as a consequence. Here, it's a very different type of justification to Adam. You have to say, I'm letting you bear this burden, even though you're already at a level of moderate disability, in order to give a benefit to Bill, who will now, in any case, be better off than you. That's harder to justify. It's justifiable if this benefit is much larger than this burden, I think. But if we assume that they just balance each other out in the one-person case, I think you now have reason to intervene where you didn't before. This is a case of shifting between an interpersonal <coughs> and an interpersonal trade-off. The uncompensated harm or burden in an interpersonal case um, has greater weight than a compensated burden in an intrapersonal case. Now, this is a familiar type of argument. And what does it show? It shows that the three distributive theories that I mentioned, the first utilitarianism, uh, I think, is problematic because it can't accommodate this particular judgment. Why? Because utilitarianism says all that matters is the sum total of well-being in a fixed population. So what you should look at is how much additional utility are we creating in the world or in our population? Well, here, the additional utility is just the benefit minus the burden. Right? And here, it's the same, the additional utility. And this was larger in this case, so it's larger in this case. It makes no difference, in other words, how this well-being is distributed, distributed for the utilitarian. Intrapersonal and interpersonal trade-offs are treated in exactly the same way by the utilitarian. So uh, that's why, in my view, in the certainty case, and this is a familiar point, uh, utilitarianism earns itself naming Hearst's dual skull uh, in the first case. <coughs> now, the two theories who standardly, and as I always taught it, 
for a response to this problem about the separateness of versions. Um, or let me refer back to the slogan Rawls said famously about utilitarianism in response to cases like this. Utilitarianism treats many-person decision cases like a one-person decision case. This is a one-person decision case. Does the benefit outweigh the burden for one person? And it treats many-person cases just like a one-person case. Therefore, it ignores the separateness of persons. I think that's uh, where the slogan, it's a good slogan, and uh, we'll see it applies to other theories as well. Now, quickly, what is the prior, what are the other two views? Prioritarianism is the view that well-being matters but an increment matters more the less well off you are in absolute terms. So if we're to imagine in the first case, say Adam is here, this is his moderate disability. And he will first experience this loss and then experience this gain. Um, and in the two-person case, we have Adam and Bill, where, let's skip the blue one, um, Adam will experience this loss and Bill this gain. The priority view says a given increment in well-being matters more the lower the absolute level of well-being from which it takes place. So this loss will move him to a lower level of well-being. This gain will move him to a higher level of well-being, even though the gain, by hypothesis, is larger than the loss. We weight this loss more strongly than we weight this gain, because this gap between this level of well-being and that is weighted more highly than this jump. So we apply extra weight lower down the scale of well-being. So improving you by a given unit of well-being, a utile, let's call it, along utilitarian lines, when you have very few utiles is worth a lot. When you have very many utiles, that extra utile, extra unit of well-being is not worth morally as much. So that view is capable of accounting for this shift because even though for the person the benefit is outweighed by the burden, between individuals we apply the extra weighting here because uh, it's at a lower level than here. So the priority view can account for this shift. It doesn't earn itself a skull. And of course egalitarianism, which is the other view, I'm considering a simple version of egalitarianism where inequality is just bad in and of itself. Now, in this case, of course, we start out, there's no question of inequality because we're simply considering one person in isolation. In this case, if we allow this change to happen, then we will generate inequality. We will go from a situation in which both are equally well off to a situation in which one is worse off than the other. And that would make introduce a bad in this situation that wasn't there in the one-person case. So again, an egalitarian can account for the fact that even though it's fine to let the 
developments take its course in the Adams one-person case, it's wrong to do so in the two-person case when we're taking two people into it. At least insofar as we're considering Adam here in isolation. Okay. Now, a lot of my work has been concentrated not so much on certainty cases, but <coughs> uncertainty cases. Or I should rather say, more precisely, risky cases. Some economists draw a distinction between risk and uncertainty, but for the sake of today, I'm calling it the identical. Now, I think that the same thing applies, the same type of reasoning applies to uncertain benefits and burdens as applies to certain benefits and burdens. That's to say, <coughs> suppose we have a case again in which Adam will either, if you intervene, stay at moderate disability. Or, if you let the water take its course, rather than the benefits and burdens coming at different points in time, they are risky ones. So either with probability of 0.5, nature throws heads, he gets the burden, or with probability of 0.5, he gets the benefit. So you will never get both. And again, you're asked to imagine the benefit to be just outweighing the burden such that you say, I'll let, I won't intervene. For Adam's sake, I'll let the risk play out. Because if I were to intervene and keep him here at the moderate disability, I would rob him of a chance of benefit. Of course, I'd eliminate the chance of the burden. But this gamble <coughs> is sufficiently good for him that the benefit just outweighs the burden. I should let the chips fall where they may for his sake. So just as I think an individual can be compensated within his or her life for um, a burden by a later benefit, when we're dealing with risky cases, which is of course what life is like, we can think that at the moment of decision, someone is compensated by a potential compensated for a potential burden by potential benefit. This is what any medical operation is like. Right? You have a chance of a loss and a chance of a greater gain. And if they balance each other out for the sake of the person, you would recommend the operation, say, or let, in this case, nature take its course if it looks like an attractive gamble. Again, I won't say much about the size of the benefits and burdens, except you choose them such that this is just sufficiently large enough that you say, I'll keep my hands off. I'll let this happen for the sake of the person. Now, again, we move from a risky intrapersonal case to a two-person interpersonal case. Well, all we do is, if this water, this mineral in the water, which will happen naturally, turns out to be burdensome, it will go to Adam with a 50% chance, and nothing will happen to Bill or with a 50% chance uh, nothing will happen to Adam, but Bill will get a benefit. And again, the benefits and burdens are just as large. Now, I think the same type of reasoning applies that apply 
before. And they, here, even if it turns out badly, you can offer the following justification to Adam. I did it for your sake. I couldn't, I didn't know whether it would work or not, but I could only have avoided you ending up this badly by robbing you at what at the time I believed was a great chance. Like what you would say to someone who had an operation that went wrong. As long as you did the best you could as a doctor, that's the justification you offered. At the time, it was the best decision for your sake. You can't say that here. If Adam says, uh, excuse me, why am I, why did you let the water take its course when you could easily have you know, kept things as they were, you say, oh, I let you run the risk of a burden which I knew would make you worse off than uh, Bill for the sake of a chance of a greater benefit to somebody else. Again, that doesn't seem <coughs> to have the same moral force as I did it for your sake, especially given that Adam will now, however things turn out, be worse off than Bill, when otherwise they would have been equally well off. So again, I think we see the shift from the intra to the interpersonal case. The shift is that a burden becomes morally harder to justify when it has no compensating benefit, either at a point in time or as a potential gain to someone. Now, we already know utilitarianism can't deal with this type of shift, and the same applies here. If the utilitarianism just says in risky cases we take the expected benefit and burden, well, the expected burden is smaller by hypothesis than the expected benefit, so, should we, so we should do it. Here, the expected burden is smaller than the expected benefit, so we should do it. Okay, so it earns itself another skull. But now, one of the views which did okay before the priority view, um, has a problem as well because the priority view gave extra weight to being to improvements lower down the well-being scale. So if we have to imagine now there's Adams in the bad luck case and Adam in the good luck case. bad luck, he moves from here down. Good luck, he moves from here up. Now, we already know you apply <coughs> extra weight to this loss here than to this gain here on the priority view. So, we reweight it such that because we, we let the person, we let you choose the size of the benefits and burdens just so that they just outweigh it. So that on balance, you know, this gets reweighted, gets lower weighting, becomes a smaller arrow. This becomes a somewhat larger arrow, but this is still just sufficiently large for that to outweigh it. But now, whenever it outweighs it in the one person case, the priority view just says, well, Given that the weights we apply are on an absolute scale, whether they come to one person or two people doesn't matter. So whether I write A with good luck, uh, bad luck, and A with good luck, or A with bad luck and B with good luck, if it outweighed it in the 
one-person case, it outweighs it in the two-person case. Because even though the burden gets an extra weight, the extra weight it gets doesn't shift between the one and the two-person case. The prioritarian cares only about improvements, given increments in well-being from a, from a certain level, applies the same weight to this loss as it does to this gain, whether or not these are two potential futures of the same individual, or they are different individuals' potential futures. It cares only about applying extra weight lower down a given absolute scale, not how he compares to somebody else. It's a difficult point, uh, or maybe a difficult point to grasp, I'm happy to discuss it more in questions. So the one view at this moment, which remains standing, is the egalitarian view. Why is that? Because in a one-person case, the egalitarian view is silent. And usually it's supplemented with some other principle, like caring about people's well-being. So you care about inequality, and you care about people's well-being. But it can say, hey, something else is going on, because now we get inequality between Adam and Bill. Um, in this case, and uh, in this case as well, so something bad happens here, which didn't happen here. Namely, we're going to generate inequality. And that means that where this was permissible, this is now no longer permissible. So until now, the only view standing is the egalitarian view. Uh, and it seemed to me, about two years ago, when I thought of this argument against the priority view, that uh, egalitarianism is the way to go. And then I thought of the following example. Uh, keep this as it stands. All we have to do, it's so, it's so strange. You have to do just one thing. I can't believe that I didn't see it. Um, okay, a flat line means no burden, no benefit. It might help if I draw the levels of well-being, since that matters for egalitarians. So this is Adam, Bob. This is case one, Adam, Bob, case two. Focus first on this case. And this uh, means we have to choose between both Adam and Bob having a moderate disability and nothing happens to them. That's if we stop this natural event from occurring. Both of them are at this given level of well-being. These are the bars, the height of the bars denotes their well-being. And now, we have one of the two possible things. Uh, Bob is unaffected. But Adam can either get the burden or get the benefit. And again, the chances are 50-50, right? So we move from this world to one of these two possible worlds. Right? One in which Adam loses this and Bob stays the same. One in which Adam gains this and Bob stays the same. So it's just like our one person case before, except Bob is there in the background, totally unaffected. <coughs> now again, choose as you wish. Choose this just sufficiently larger than that. 
So you think, again, and it seems to be, I mean, if you don't care about inequality at all, you might say, I'm just, that hasn't changed. Adding Bob, who's silent in this whole thing, totally unaffected, doesn't change it for me. It's just whatever gamble I would let uh, Adam run for Adam's sake, I should let Adam run when I introduce Bob as a silent partner in the arrangement, right? who's not going to be affected in any way. But some people, and I think there's something to this, say, well, the moment you take Bob into consideration in this case, right? before we just looked at Adam, but now you introduce Bob, something bad appears on our radar screen, which we didn't see before, namely inequality. It's bad because cosmically unfair that someone is worse off than somebody else. And here, Bob would be worse off than him. So fine. If you're an egalitarian of this kind, and you seem to have reason to be, since it's the only one standing till now, apply, say, look, inequality really is a bad thing, so I need this to be bigger than it was before. Add some compensating benefit. Keep increasing the size of the benefit till you say, okay, okay, all things considered, I see two things. One, the gamble is expectedly good for Adam. Two, it's going to generate inequality. But if it's good enough for Adam or shrink the size of the loss, as you wish, there is a point at which I think it's just permissible to have the risky, take the risky option um, in which A gets either a burden or a benefit and B will be totally uninvolved. Fine. Whatever you've chosen your benefit and burden to be, all you've got to do now is what we did before. Switch it. A still gets the burden if it turns out bad, but the benefit goes to B if it goes well. Now, how does that make any difference? Let's just draw the little bar graphs. So our first world, first potential world, remember these are 50-50 chances, is exactly the same as above. Adam gets the loss, nothing happens to B, so no change there. The other potential world is nothing happens to Adam, but B gets the benefit. Bob gets the benefit. Okay. Where the benefits and burdens are exactly the same size as we're working here. Now, before we see what the theory says, we already know, I think, what we should say, which is it's very different when you move from an intrapersonal trade-off to an interpersonal trade-off. It's much <coughs> harder to justify the burden to Adam here than it is to justify it to him here. Why? Because imagine it turns out bad again. He ends up with a burden in this first case. And he asks you, how did I end up this way? Why didn't you intervene? You say, well, I thought it might be beneficial to you. And if it had been beneficial, it would have been so beneficial, it was worth it. It was worth the risk for you, I thought. For your sake, I did it. The only way I could have prevented you from ending up badly is by robbing you of a chance of a great good. I did it for you. Here, you can't say that to him. All you can say is, I let you run the risk of a burden, knowing that this risk would make you worse off than Bill, for the sake of a potential benefit to Bill. 
You let me run a risk for this other guy, thereby going to make him better off than me? That's much harder to justify. And when you thought it was just barely justifiable here, you should think it's not justifiable here. That's the same story we've had. Can egalitarianism account for this? Until now it could, but it can't in this case. Why not? Egalitarianism cares about outcome inequalities. It's the type of egalitarianism I've been talking about. Just clarify. <coughs> um, because it's the egalitarianism defended by people like Larry Temkin, Jerry Cohen, Richard Arneson, hosts of other contemporary egalitarians who say, it's bad when some are worse off than others due to brute luck, due to no fault or choice of their own. And by hypothesis, these people have no choice in the matter. You are a distant stranger who can control this for them. They can't choose to run this risk or not. None of this is their responsibility. Well, let's look at the two possible things that might happen. If the luck goes bad, there's no difference in this world. There's, some, there's the same inequality and the same people. If the luck turns good, well, it's different people now. One guy gets, here it's Adam who gets the benefit, and here it's Bill. But the sizes are the same. The generated inequality is the same. And inequality is an impersonal notion. How much inequality is there in this world? Well, the same amount of inequality is in this world. Egalitarian doesn't care whether it's Adam or Bill who ends up well off and the other badly off. The unfairness of the outcome is the same. We can just rewrite it, relabel them. Makes no difference from the egalitarian point of view. There is just as much inequality in this world as there is in this world. There's obviously just as much inequality in this world as there is in this world. So the inequality that would result is no worse when we shift the benefit from Adam to Bob. Expected inequality is going to be exactly the same. So the egalitarian view will have to say what the other views also said. Namely, if you think it's permissible to do it in this case, to let the chips fall where they may in this case, you should think it's permissible to do so in this case. An egalitarian can give you no reason, an egalitarian can give you no reason why you should shift and give greater weight, like you've been saying all along you should do, to this burden. So, let me sum up, and of course, the prioritarian and the egalitarian would say the same even about this example. I don't have to go through that, you can go through that in questions if you want. So really, let me try to sum up and then open it up for uh, questions. The point is this. Individual lives have a unity, which means that you can balance benefits and burdens to the same individual in a manner that you can't balance these benefits and burdens when the benefits go to one separate individual and the burdens to another separate individual. Burdens become harder to justify when they're not compensated. When you have no compensating either actual benefit or chance of a benefit in return for having to bear a burden or a chance of a burden, that burden should count very strongly. A lot counts against it. And this really basic point is not taken adequate account of in any of the theories of distributive justice that I've outlined, which are the three leading theories. 
Let me just reflect for a moment why this is so. I think the first reason why this is so is that philosophers don't think about risk. Every time you read a paper, until quite recently in the literature, you have certainty cases. And we've seen that prioritarianism and egalitarianism can deal with certainty cases. They have no problem with certainty cases. But uh, the world has no certainty cases. What we really need is to test distributive theories in uncertainty cases or risky cases. And the moment we do that, we see uh, that, in fact, with a simple case like this, all three theories have a problem. Why? Because they're impersonal. They care only about the distribution of benefits and burdens impersonally considered, not the people who will bear these benefits and burdens. That's especially clear here. So how do these different theories assess these different, these three different possible distributions? The utilitarian says, am I adding total utility by moving from here to here? Not who gets the utility, just is the total increasing? If I am, then I should move from here to here. And this is the same because the <coughs> utilities I'm adding or subtracting are the same. So maximize expected utility. If this is better than that, then this will be better than that. Priority view says exactly the same thing, except it gives a bit of extra weight to these losses. It still says, compute the sum total of weighted utility in this world. If it's better than here, that's great. Well, given that it doesn't care who this weighted utility comes to, if this world is expectedly better than that, then this, these, the expectation of these <coughs> worlds is better than that. Makes no difference who gets it. And interestingly, even egalitarianism does this as well, because it says, yeah, for the person, this is a good gamble, but it's going to create something bad. It's going to create inequality in the world. So we need some extra goodness to compensate this badness. But again, this badness, <coughs> badness and inequality is impersonal. For an egalitarian, it doesn't matter if I'm better off than you or you're better off than me. All that matters is the gap between us. Well, the gap here is exactly the same in this potential world as this potential world. The gap here is the same as here. So the expected gap which we were trying, by which we assess these worlds, is the same no matter who the benefits and burdens come to. So two problems in these theories. First is philosophers have tested them only in certainty cases. And this whole area of risky cases has been understudied, I think, in philosophy. Second point is um, these theories are impersonal in a bad way. They look at the distribution of well-being or the potential distributions of well-being, not for whose sake the distribution was brought about. They're anonymous, so to speak. We can switch the names in any of these potential worlds, and it comes, makes no difference. And in some sense, this is good. They're impartial. That's what utilitarians always say. They say, a Utah for me is a Utah for you. We're completely impartial. And the utilitarian says, a gap between me and you 
or a gap between you and somebody else, if the gap is equally large, makes no difference, it's just as bad. We're completely impartial. And the prioritarian says, extra weight for someone who's lower on an absolute scale, the same weight goes for everybody, we're completely impartial. This is good, moral theory of this kind should be impartial. But they go beyond this particular way in which they're impartial. There's a way to be impartial is to be impersonal. Not to care who gets the benefits and burdens properly weighted. When you're impersonal, you are impartial. But there are ways, I will propose, of being impartial without being impersonal. Because the ways in which they are impersonal is that all these theories <coughs> neglect for whose sake a particular distribution is being brought about. None of them can take account of the extremely simple difference between saying to Adam, I let you run the risk for your sake, or you're suffering this burden now for your sake because you will get a greater benefit later. The difference between that and the difference and the situation in which you say to Adam, I'm letting you run this risk of harm for somebody else's sake who will be better off than you. The latter is it's a basic moral thing, I think, that it's different, harder to justify. And all these theories care about is what's the size of the burden and benefit, and what's the level of well-being from which they take place? Not for whose sake are we letting these benefits and burdens happen. So they've gone too far in being impartial. They've become impersonal. And that's a problem. So, to conclude, what can we do instead? I think we have to, at least in part, appeal to personal impartial theories. And this is really open area in philosophy. Um, and uh, do I have a, can I have a minute to skip this out and then we can have questions? Okay. What does a personal and partial theory look like? I think we can call it something like, in a paper with Michael Tsuka, I should have mentioned this, by the way. This research I'm doing with others. You can find the papers on my website, Michael Tsuka at UCL and Mark Furbay of the University of Paris. Um, comparative claims. And this is the way the comparative claims model goes. And it's, it's inspired by something that Nagel says in a beautiful article on equality. It's one of those beautiful articles that argues for a conclusion which is not the conclusion that really follows from it, but he does notice it himself. The conclusion that follows from it is really what I've just been saying, except he calls it a form of egalitarianism, which it's not. What it is is this. He says, Egalitarianism is impartial by being impersonal, roughly, is what he says. That's the problem. What moral justification is about is placing yourself, not, don't view it in Sidgwick's famous phrase, from the point of view of the universe, how much well-being is there in the universe? What a weird way to think of moral justification, right? Or how much inequality is there in the room? That's also a very impersonal way of thinking about things, goodness and badness. Rather, if you're talking about distribution among individuals, <coughs> 
rather than seeing it from an impersonal point of view, see it from each person's point of view. So first you, then your point of view, then your point of view, then your point of view. Every person who's affected. Then of course the problem is that's all you get all these diverse voices and you have to step back and make a final judgment. But um, there's ways of making the final judgment without lapsing into the point of view of the universe, how much well-being is there in the room, how much inequality is there in the room, so to speak, or in the universe. So how would it go? A simple idea here. First is we look at people's claims. People have claims on your good, in such cases of distributive ethics, on a good or on the avoidance of a burden, um, whenever it affects them. So people who are not affected have no claims. So in the first, this particular case, where Bob is unaffected, Bob is not out of the picture. He has no claim that I either do something, divert the river, or refrain. The only person involved who has a claim is Adam. And what does Adam's claim look like? Well, from Adam's perspective, he sees a potential good, he sees a potential evil, he sees that the good outweighs the potential evil. So for his sake, it's, it's looking like a good gamble, like a risky treatment. It would go to the hospital to fail. So he's like, that sounds good to me. So when I place myself in his position, it's looking good. Bob has nothing to say in the matter. Now, what happens when I move to this case? When I place myself in Adam's position, Adam says, no, 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 no. I don't, you know, uh, please keep things as they were, because all you're doing for me is imposing a risk of harm on me with no compensating benefit. But of course, so it doesn't look so good when I'm in his position, but then of course when I place myself in Bob's position, Bob says, bring it on, you know, this is great. Either nothing happens to me or something great happens to me. Um, this is looking very good. So now, after I place myself in each person's position, I have to step back and I have to decide competing claims. Okay? That's why I call the view the comparative claims view. It's a claims view because people have claims only when they're concerned, when something is at stake for them. It's comparative claims because when they're competing, I have to make a decision. Well, when the person who's going to bear the burden would, as a consequence, be worse off than the person who would get the benefit, I think he gets some extra weight. But that extra weight was not present in, the, in this case. It only happens when he's competing with someone who would end up better off than him. So that can perfectly account for the shift. All these other views, either like utilitarianism applied no extra weight, or prioritarianism or utilitarianism applied the extra weight, but in, independently of whether we were doing it for Adam's sake or for Bob's sake. This view, when you just, it's so simple, you just take up each person's view, and then you balance <laughs> their claims, and when the person who would be burdened would end up worse off as a consequence than the person who would be benefited, you give the, the burden extra weight but not when it's an intra-personal trade-off, but you do do it when it's an inter-personal trade-off. So, to sum up, um, these views all get it wrong. They, get, they don't manage to fully respect the distinction between the unity of the individual and the separateness of persons because they're impersonal. 
<coughs> all in their own special ways. Each in its own special way. The solution is to be impartial without being impersonal. And that's to go to something like Nagel's, Thomas Nagel. His article with quality in his wonderful collection of professions. God, if I could write like that, I wouldn't be giving this talk. Be writing. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't do anything else. Um, beautiful collection of mortal questions that he art with quality towards the end. Without knowing it, he's formulated something like this. He formulates an impartial, personal view, which we could sum up under the title of comparative claims, in which a person has a claim only when their interests are at stake, when their interests are competing with other people's interests, the person who would end up worse off than somebody else, their claim gets extra weight. So that can perfectly explain the shift in all three cases we've been talking about. Um, and moreover, it's natural, I think. So it's quite uh, uh, striking. But uh, anyway, that's it. thank you. where either it's 
where the one, only one person is concerned, like this one, right? When you move it to a case where the everything stays the same except now somebody else gets the benefit, it's morally different. And uh, if we've given burdens extra weight for the psychological reason, this argument should still go through. We give it the same extra weight here, but now we should give it even more extra weight because it falls on someone to, for whom it's not compensated. So I, I agree with your point, but I don't think it uh, undermines this one. Listening to you talking about the unity of the individual and burden mm -hmm. time, the great controversy at the moment in universities actually fits in with this. But funding universities has been um, everyone back in the you know the 60s, everyone paid for, for some individuals to go to university because yeah. the utilitarian said that society would be better off. Mm -hmm. More and more people are going to university. Now the new proposal is that the university should be able to charge more of the like the full fee, but you get that money paid for you as a student. So you go to university for free. You haven't got to stump up money up front to get to university, so everyone can get to university. And if you benefit by earning more money, <coughs> which ideally should be the average wage because you've got the university, then you get the burden. If you don't get more money because you choose to actually pay back by working for the state, you know, where you know state wages you've got to you know be you know a degree, be a nurse, be a social worker, teacher. So you have to have this benefit, but they don't pay you sufficient ever to pay that back. But the state then pays it and the state gets the benefit. So the comparative claims says say that the new system is in fact argued through that, that it's a better system than what we've had previously because other people have had to pay for people to get a degree that's going to make them better off. That's why they enjoy the protests. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know, the real world cases are always far more complex than our sim these simple examples, right? Because many people, more people are affected, whether the precise sizes of the benefits and burdens, and there are other effects on education, right? The commercialization argument, etc. But That's roughly, in a nutshell, I agree with you. Yes. Your, your example of the burden before the benefit is exactly the same we have with, it, with medica medication, in the sense that a lot of medicines, when the person is first takes the medication, yep. they feel worse off. Yep. But then the body adjusts to it, then they receive the benefit of the medication. It was, the analogy was meant to be with that, but I, I tried not to make it a medical case because then you bring in questions of patient autonomy or the doctor-patient relationship, whereas here the thought is you're just a stranger who can affect at a distance yeah. some people uh, whose welfare will be affected by a natural force of events. Right? But in essence, yes, this type of gambles, this type of distribution, Applies and uh, I generally in broad outline I agree with Lisa the back to funding system. Hi, um, I was interested in your baseline mm -hmm. and why you made. I I think I failed to grasp this, the significance of the moderate disability, and I wondered to that end whether or not if is anything changed materially by introducing a third person who didn't have a moderate disability. Good. The reason I did that is to make it, I didn't have to, the, it's complete, the whole argument is baseline independent. But the reason I did it was 
um, so that you can imagine there being something which would be a very substantial benefit to the person. So sometimes if you talk about, if, if Adam was already well off, say full health, um, then you think, well, what could we do to him that would be sufficiently good to let him run a risk of a significant worsening in his health? Right? So for the sake of that, to make it easily imaginable that there would be a burden for which you're willing to take a risk of worsening your condition overall, I thought medical analogy would work. But it's baseline independent. Now, the second point, what about more people? Um, of course, the uh, it's a very good point. The utilitarianism and prioritarianism, it doesn't matter how many other people there are. Because the weight they give to a person's well-being, improvements or lowerings, is independent of how well off other people are. It doesn't compare to others. Um, egalitarianism does, of course, it introduce a lot more people in our, you know, in our one-person case when we're just talking about Adam. If you learn that a lot of other people are very well off, a lot of other people are very badly off, then that might change your decision. Right? Adding a second person or a third person makes a difference with egalitarian. Some people think this is a reductio ad absurdum of egalitarianism. Right? Here I am, I'm Adam, this looks like a good gamble for me. Give me, the, do the treatment for me, or let it happen. As it oh, I have to see first, hmm, what about uh, other, how well off are other people? You know, and what about the people who are dead many generations ago, right? Uh, does their well-being matter? Oh, I learned that our ancestors were very badly off. Sorry, I can't give you the treatment, because that would make you so much better off than your ancestors. That would generate inequality in the universe, right? Um, so some people think that this is the fact that people whose material well-being is unconcerned can matter in our egalitarian calculations is a reduction of egalitarianism. I'm, I don't know whether that's whether right or wrong. But the other views, egalitarianism, prioritarianism, but also the comparative claims view is not sensitive to this problem. Because the first thing I said about the comparative claims view is a person has a claim only if they're concerned. Their well-being is at stake. So our ancestors uh, have passed away, so they are not, I don't have to take account of they don't have any claims in this story. Um, I'm introducing a third party who's unaffected <coughs> now. So that can be a disadvantage. If you strongly feel that inequality is unfair, even between people who are, have no concern with each other, different continents, no knowledge of each other, no different times, different planets, then you will reject, or at least think it's incomplete, the comparative claims here. I just wondered if you were automatically drawn to the idea that an additional burden to somebody who's already suffering a burden by comparison to the outside world, um, because they are moderately disabled, yep. automatically in and of itself draws you towards that being demanding additional weight. Uh, oh, you mean in my example? Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, question. Maybe subconsciously, that's why I chose moderate disability. Um, wasn't meant to do that. I think you can do the whole thing again without even mentioning disabilities. Just your house gets destroyed, right? There's a 50% chance your house gets destroyed, a 50% chance your um, uh, the, the, your fields become newly watered by this 
this the, the way the river's been diverted and you thrive like never before. That wasn't such a nice house anyway, so you're willing to take the risk, right? So, yeah. So, excellent questions. All right, is there a, yeah. Great, right. thank you. Um, <clears throat> so I found it difficult to, um, find myself agreeing with all of the conclusions that mm -hmm. I was being asked to endure. Um, partly because I didn't have strong intuitions about some of the cases, so I wasn't sure just to what extent it was embarrassing for the theories under the microscope that they gave answer X and Y. But also at least partially because I wasn't sure who the prioritarians and the egalitarians that you're taking issue with are. Um, and more specifically, I suppose, when, when you think of utilitarianism, you have a fully fleshed out moral theory in mind, which already takes a stand on the circumstances, <coughs> denies it. Um, but when you think of prioritarianism or egalitarianism, there are lots more, there's, there's a lot that's still unsaid about what the theoretical commitments, ethical commitments of the theorists are. And in particular, you know, where they stand on severance of persons and deontological constraints generally and so on. So I sort of had this hunch that the, the criticisms that you advance of orientalism and egalitarianism <coughs> might be specific to, well, in effect, consequentialist brands of those mm. that say, well, single-minded single mm. prioritarians who subsume all other moral concerns to optimizing priority-weighted well-being, or consequentialist egalitarians who subsume all other moral goals to um, uh, producing equality, will violate the separateness of persons. Well, I suppose from a deontological perspective, that's not going to be a great newsflash. Consequentialism generally violates the separateness of persons. But I suppose if one were to endorse a kind of deontologically constrained prioritarianism or deontologically Strange egalitarianism, and the criticisms just don't then apply. So, you know, to take G.A. Cohen, for instance, who you cite as an egalitarian, well, sure, he's a like egalitarian, but he also identifies himself as a, you know, what Francis Cannon calls a standard deontologist. Yep. For which, you know, for reason, I suppose he would say, well, you know, I agree with equality, and I agree with acceptance of persons, and I can see that the latter is a constraint on the pursuit of performance. I wouldn't. You know, impose a great loss on somebody uh, I mean, to the point where they become you know, horrifically badly off for the sake of achieving equality across the system in personal okay, so, so I suppose, you know, I, I, I wondered whether, I suppose my, my overall comment is just, is, is this not just a criticism of the consequentialists as opposed to sort of people with particular views on distributive methods? Okay, that's a wonderful question. Um, let me take it in parts. So, I wasn't presupposing consequentialism here because I was focusing on a very particular type of case. I'm, you wouldn't harm someone in order to save others, in this case. I wouldn't be using, if Adam comes to harm, Adam, you know, I'm not extracting a tooth from him to brighten his smile, you know, removing his kidney to, uh, etc. You know. so, those types of deontological considerations are not an issue. It's rather, uh, should I not intervene and let this pattern of burdens and benefits happen, or the risky pattern, or should I stand back, oh sorry, or should I stop this natural course of occurrence and leave people where they are? 
contempt was in the example to, in that sense, even people who care about rights, like rights against being harmed in the course of helping others or something like that, sometimes face distributive cases like this where no one's rights are being violated because nature is doing it. Right? That's why I chose the example the way it goes. The aim was that this is a type of case which should concern even people who care about rights, because the way rights are standardly viewed and no one's rights are being violated by whatever I do. Um, <coughs> second point is even deontologists, even people who don't care only about the consequences or expected consequences, have a theory of good consequences. They just have it constrained, the pursuit of it. So even if you do think that rights are involved in this case, you can still be interested in the partial question, how do I assess the consequences of this case? And traditionally, at least, well, traditionally it's a big word. Uh, the way I used to teach utilitarianism, <laughs> I would say, look, this is a problem with utilitarianism. Here are two views that deal with it, the priority view and the egalitarianism. And that's the way it's formulated. Uh, uh, the criticism was always directed only against utilitarianism. As far as I can tell, no one has ever directed the violation of the separatist persons or the distinction between the unity of individual and separatist persons criticism against the priority view or against egalitarianism. Rather, <coughs> they are presented as, look at how bad utilitarianism is in this respect. Here are two alternative ways. Um, so, I think that uh, given the, that's the way the debate went, then we never passed uh, my first uh, column with the death skull for egalitarianism. It seems to me to be uh, a loose flash. But of course, one's always more excited about something one figures out themselves, especially if I've changed my mind as a consequence, right? So, uh, maybe I'm overselling it. You um, seem to rely on quite a strong um, differentiation between one individual and lots of persons. And of course, that's a very sensible thing to do with people who are currently living. But I'm not sure if it makes so much sense when you look at the unborn um, and future generations. Um, and I, I mean, I sort of have a little example using your framework, mm -hmm. which might show So I would take any of these, um, yeah. any of these cases. And instead of having separate people, think about two genetic disorders, Adam's syndrome and Brian's disease. Yeah. <laughs> um, both of which are minor, uh, you know, have minor disabilities, but they have this difference that if you have Adam's syndrome, then drinking this particular mineral makes you feel better, and if you have Brian's disease, then drinking this mineral makes you feel worse. Yeah. And that you face the same situation. Now, in, um, in, you know, in terms of change the water supply. Now, in one situation, you have a child who's been born, and we know he has either Adam's syndrome or, or Brian's disease, but no tests have been developed um, for it. So, in effect, he faces, and it's 50% it's likely that he has one or the other. So, in this situation, it's the same as the individual case, and we should say, well, you know, if the benefit's so good and the, uh, and the cost is so much, well, then, for, this, for the sake of this child, we should allow the water to carry on flowing to it. Um, but if you go back in time a bit to the point before the child is conceived, and you say that at this point we can also know that there's a 50% chance that the child of this conception 
will have Adam's syndrome, fifty percent chance to have Brian's disease. But also, <coughs> all the rest of his genetic material will be different. It's not that he's going to be the same baby, but with two differences. It's actually going to be two different people. You know, it's the genes we put him mixed up. It just so happens that, whatever reason, in this situation, the dynasty strain will either have Brian's syndrome or Adam's disease. Now, in this situation, you're talking about the separate people. Or it seemed would seem to me you were, that there's no way you can say to you know, a girl with brown hair and it's going to be really tall, but well, there is a possibility that you might be the boy with black hair who is a midget. Um, oh, well, by, you know, and, and being the same person. But that one of them would have Adam's syndrome and the other Brian's disease. Um, yep. So these are separate people, but at the same time, you are in a sense considered one person. If you, there's going to be a child, you know, they're going to do IVF or something, so the conception is very likely, and the child will, will happen. But you can actually say, the child is this conception as a single person, rather than saying all the various individuals that may result in this conception. Now, I'm not sure, I mean, you can go into a lot more detail with this, looking at, you know, half its challenges and things, but this one on itself, I, I don't really see necessarily that making the decision a week before or a week after conception should make a difference between saying, I act in one way or act in another way. Yeah, I was trying to draw up a case where you put it, but it's it's quite. All right, so um, but but let me um, let's do a little back and forth if it's okay. That's uh, good. So first point to make is again a wonderful point. Now, so the point is, what if these people? What if our actions uh, determine who will be created, and what? And if we do one thing. There will be someone who will get a benefit. If we do another thing, there will be someone who will... Oh, no, sorry. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to avoid that situation. Ah. That's kind of where I'm going. Um, but regardless of this, we just say we this conception will result in an individual. And yes. this, this individual could have yes. any number of genetic characteristics. Yes. But we know that there's a 50% chance that they will have Adam's syndrome and 50% chance they will have Brian's disease. Okay, so let me see if we we, get, we do let the water go, take its course, right? Yeah. Or we can uh, keep the water where it is. Yeah. Now, if we keep it where it is, um, a so someone will be created. No, there's that, and there's also there will you, be, there you will be a child. There will be a different child depending on what we do. No, 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 no. central. Um, so in one situation, you're deciding, let's say, a month before this conception's supposed to take place. So they're booked in the IVF, you know, they know this conception's going to happen and that the child will either have yes. So it doesn't, you're still a stranger who knows this is going to happen. And this is one thing, guys, it's very good, yeah. Okay. Um, in the other one, you're making this decision a month after the birth. So there's this child in the, you know, there, you, you can see this child. Uh -huh. but. They haven't developed a test for Adam's syndrome or Brian's disease yet. They know his genetic pattern, but they don't actually have a genetic test for it. So you know this child has a 50% chance. So in, in one individual, you know there's a 50% chance of an individual coming into the world to have Adam's syndrome, and a 50% chance of an individual coming into the world to have Brian's disease. In the other situation, there is an individual you can point to, and there's a 50% chance that they have Adam's syndrome, and a 50% chance that they have Brian's disease. Okay. Um, it's going to be... The, there's two, I think there's two points to make, and then we'd have to work it out with some concrete examples. But here's, <coughs> I think, a very good point. 
It's a point about my personality and personality. The, the thing I'm proposing, the, the idea, if something is an expected benefit to someone, that you should do it, you're holding the person constant. It's the same person who would get the benefit or who might suffer the burden. And it's the idea is I can justify it to that person because they're, in a sense, they get, uh, uh, I'm doing it for their sake. The expected benefit outweighs expected burden. But it might be the case that um, there can, be, as a consequence of my action, there might be a benefit and there might be a burden. But if there's the benefit, works through changing the genetic code of the individual, right? Because it's in the womb, so to speak. Right? They become such; a, they would become a different person who's benefited than the burdened person would be. Even though there's still only one person in the world. So that's a one-person case. Um, but the person is different. Now, I actually think that that is uh, relevantly different from my one-person case, where the person is the same person with two potential futures. Because um, imagine this dialogue that I propose. Right? So you don't divert the water, you let it happen because you think there's a 50% chance that someone will be created with this, uh, who will be benefited as a consequence of the water being this way. And there's a 50% chance that someone will be created who will be burdened with the water going this way. If it ends up badly, the person's created who is harmed by you letting the water run with this new mineral in it, that person can say, wait a moment, you let me run a risk of this burden for the sake of some other potential person getting a potential benefit, that's much harder to justify to this person than I did it for your sake. I think this, the slogan, I did it for your sake, is much is, is a very powerful justification which is absent in your case. <coughs> but we can go to even other non-identity cases where what we do affects who exists, where I think my comparative claim to you has no purchase because there are only different individuals. Um, and in that case, I think, uh, and I'm working on this precisely now, that's why I got so excited by your question. I mean, I think it's a very good question. I think in those cases, we need something like the impersonal views, like utilitarianism, egalitarianism, or prioritarianism. So I've gone a bit too far, but of course, you know, advertising, that's what you do. Uh, by drawing these as if it's all over for these three guys. Uh, in fact, I think we need them, but only in cases where we're talking about future generations far away where what, what we do affects who is in the world. Because then um, my comparative claims model doesn't really work because it it's not easy to see how it applies to people who might not exist, uh, except in simple cases like the one just came. So it's not all over for these. It's not totally game over, but uh, there's at least a problem for them. So this is a good area to think about. Um, I realize that's incited more questions, um, but there will be a reception um, after this talk where you can um, come up to the speaker and grill him a bit more. Um, but thank you for coming. Uh, we hope to see you at the next event. Oh, the, ne the reception's at, um, on the first floor of the Lakatosh building. Um, so, yes, follow this. Opposite, here. Um, George IV, right?
Yeah. Or opposite the library for people who have more familiarity with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fun to say, don't go to the pub. Go to the philosophy building. When you fall out of the philosophy building, you're right in the pub. That's so good. <laughs> 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 yeah. oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.